Good to be back with you this morning. We're thankful for the ministry of Dr. Bruce Wilson, who served here last Sunday, and I'm thankful to Dr. Don Givler, one of our ruling elders who is assisting in worship this morning. Well, we are returning to the series through the book of the Acts. You'll remember two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan preached from chapter 10 uh, about the uh, the vision which Peter had, in which God declared that uh, through Christ the ceremonial law is fulfilled, and therefore the unclean foods have been made clean. But more importantly, more importantly, it is now time for the Gentiles to be brought into the covenant, the new covenant, Israel. And so Peter went to. Cornelius's house, right? And Cornelius himself had had a vision preparing him uh, for Peter's visit. And so we're, um, we're coming now to, we're in, we're in Cornelius's house. That's where we are in Acts chapter 10. And we're going to read now what Peter preached to Cornelius as we begin the reading at verse 34. Let's ask the Lord, to bless the reading and hearing of His Word. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your great love and rich mercy. And we thank You that You have loved us with an everlasting love in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself up for us. And we ask in His name, for the blessing anew and afresh of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, speak, O Lord, and grant us the grace to hear your voice to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. This is the Word of God. It is written. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge 
of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, over the past few weeks, you have heard me refer to the unfolding historical narrative in the book of Acts. And I do that because I want you to know where we are what's going on, why it's important, and so that you can see how the historical narrative in the book of Acts connects to your life. In Acts 10, we are at a very significant moment in the history of the church. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan's sermon focused on the table table fellowship between the Apostle Peter and Cornelius, the centurion, a commanding officer of the Roman army. His title is centurion because he commanded 100 soldiers. But the most important thing about Cornelius, the centurion, was that he was the first Gentile, non-Jewish convert in the church of Jesus Christ. Cornelius' conversion by the power of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the Apostle Peter marked an epochal shift in world history. World history changed radically and monumentally with the conversion of Cornelius, the Gentile centurion. Now, I know, I really know that it is very, very difficult. In fact, it's really probably impossible for us to feel the world-changing significance of this event because we live 2,000 years after the fact. And, therefore, because we live 2,000 years after the fact, we also quite naturally, quite naturally, think of Christianity as a Gentile faith. But it's not. Not really, not in its origins, not in its foundation, not in its most basic concepts. Everything in the New Testament is based on the Old Testament and is an outworking and a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So I'm reminding you now what I've said before. I'm reminding you of the fact that all of the apostles were Jews and none of them had any notion whatsoever of starting a new religion. They considered themselves, and indeed, in fact, they were true and faithful Jews 
who believed that the promises of God spoken by the prophets of the Old Testament had been fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so, after they were empowered with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, at Jesus' command, the apostles began to fulfill the Great Commission, preaching the gospel and making disciples in Jerusalem, in the region of Judea, then Samaria, and now in Acts chapter 10, in Damascus of Syria, beyond the boundaries of Israel, which means that at this point, the gospel was now on its way to the ends of the earth. At this point, the gospel of Jesus Christ was on its way to North Louisiana. But you see, it is in Damascus of Syria, beyond the boundaries of Israel, that the church of Jesus Christ received her first Gentile believer, Cornelius the centurion. I want to try to impress upon you the significance of what happens here with the conversion of Cornelius the Gentile. From the time of Moses, 1400 B.C., until the first century, a lot of animosity and hostility and enmity arose between the Jews and the Gentiles. And we read about that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the first century, Jews and Gentiles lived separated from one another in a very segregated society. You know about that if you know the New Testament. But then what happened? After his resurrection, but just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, commanded his apostles, all of them Jews, to go and make disciples of all nations, which literally all ethnicities, and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. In other words... Jesus commanded the apostles to bring the Gentiles, people of every tribe and tongue and nation, into the covenant of grace relationship with the one and only true and living God through faith in Him, the Son of God. And this, the Great Commission, was itself a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the message of the New Testament is that the Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world, that is, of everyone, of everyone who believes in Him, whether Jew or Gentile. Now what this means, we need to get this. God's covenant people, God's chosen people, God's holy people, God's elect people is no longer defined by national ethnic lines or genealogical descent. The true and faithful Israel of God is the new covenant Israel. It 
is defined by faith alone in Christ alone. And therefore, for example, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, Jew and Gentile, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, Jew or Gentile, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. Later in Romans 10, it says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Gentile. For everyone, Jew or Gentile, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And therefore, in his letters to the Galatians and the Ephesians, Paul emphasized that there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore in the church of Jesus Christ. He emphasized the unity of Jew and Gentile, even this imagery of the one new humanity united in Christ in the church of Jesus Christ. And it all started with Cornelius the centurion in Damascus of Syria. And here we are today, a predominantly Gentile congregation of believers in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, that is, the Savior of everyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes in Him, trusts in Him as Savior, and submits to Him as Lord. And so, while we're on this point, let me just... Let me just make, make this clear about, about Gentiles being included and engrafted into New Covenant Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, because I'm just afraid that sometimes, you know, we think about, well, you know, Jews, Jews are born Jews and Hindus are born Hindu and Muslims are born Muslim and uh, American Gentiles are born Christian. Well, let me tell you, that ain't how it works. That's not it. It's not about being an American. It's not about being born and raised in the South. It's not about having your name on the church roll. It's not about believing that there is some kind of supreme being and trying to live a nice and good life. It's about faith in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, deliverance from the curse of death, salvation from the righteous wrath of God, and a Holy Spirit-filled life of grateful obedience, joy, and power lived now on earth for the glory of the one and only true and living God. That's what being a member of New Covenant Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, is all about. And that gets us to this great passage in Acts 10.34, which records Peter's sermon to Cornelius and the other Gentiles. Verse 24 says, 
his relatives and close friends were there in his home. And so this is the sermon which the Holy Spirit used for the first Gentile conversions. And I want you to see the very basic content of Peter's sermon. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear the basic building blocks of the Apostles' Creed in this sermon. Now, by the way, we call it the Apostles' Creed not not because the apostles had a committee meeting one day and wrote the creed and entitled it the Apostles' Creed and then signed it. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's not how it happened. Rather, we call it the Apostles' Creed because it is the summary of the apostles' teaching and preaching as recorded in the New Testament, and particularly in the sermons found in the book of Acts. So as we go through Peter's sermon here, and I hope that you will take notes, I want you to hear the vocabulary and the phraseology that we say in the Apostles' Creed. Now, Peter begins by saying, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And we've got to stop right here, and we've got to make sure that we don't misinterpret this. we really got to make sure we don't misinterpret this. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. This does not mean that there are many ways to God according to different religions in different cultures in different parts of the world and that they all are equally valid. It can't mean that. It can't mean that all sincerely religious people of whatever religion are justified before God because many of those sincerely religious people worship idols or worship a multitude of gods or practice child sacrifice or seek to earn their salvation by their good works, even though their best works are tainted with sin? No, 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 no. This verse does not teach universalism or the equal validity of all world religions. It doesn't because it can't. Peter says, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Now, Peter is preaching about the one and only true and living God, the God of the Bible. And to fear Him is to obey His Word. And to do what is right is to do what he says. And he has said that Jesus is his beloved son whom he sent into the world for the salvation of sinners. Therefore, to do what is right is to believe the promise of the gospel. 
And there is no partiality at that point. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The covenant of grace is open to all, to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, Savior, and Lord. But sometimes this, this question about God's love for the world gets confused. And so I hear the question, doesn't God love everybody? The implication being, doesn't God love everybody? regardless of their faith, regardless of whether they have faith or not, regardless of anything. Doesn't God just love everybody? Well, the answer is multi-layered, but here's the basic answer. God's love is freely offered to everybody. That's the point. God shows no partiality. God's love is freely offered to everybody. But what is the fact about everybody? The fact about everybody is that everybody is a sinner. As Romans 3.23 says, all Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that everybody desperately needs God's love. And God freely offers His love to everybody. Every sinner. And therefore, He offers His love freely on His terms, in His way, which is the way of free grace and mercy. The way sinners need to be loved. Through His only begotten, beloved, sinless Son who loved us and gave Himself for us. Here is love vast as the ocean. God's love is freely offered to everybody, but the real question is, does everybody want to be loved by God in the way that God loves, in the way that He offers His love. You see, the partiality isn't with God. God shows no partiality. The partiality is within the sinful pride of the human heart, which does not want to receive the love of God in Jesus Christ does not want to receive a love which is not deserved, but rather is desperately needed for salvation from sin. 
God's love is for sinners who know that they desperately need a Savior. God's love is freely offered to everybody on the cross of Jesus Christ, but not everybody wants that love. Some people want God to love them on their terms because they think that they deserve to be loved by God or that God is automatically obligated to love them or because they want to have the right to demand that God love them in the way that they want Him to love them. They want to be forgiven of their sins without turning away from their sins. They want to be justified by God by their own good works so that they may boast in their goodness. That's where all the virtue signaling of our day comes from. They want most of all to be loved by God while living for their own glory. You see... In Jesus Christ, God's love is freely offered to everybody, but not everybody wants the gift of Jesus Christ. Do you? Have you received the love of God in Jesus Christ? You can do a word study in the New Testament, and every time the word love occurs with reference to God's love, For us, every time it is attached to the cross of Jesus Christ. God demonstrates His love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, Peter then begins to explain that the gospel was first given to Israel Old Covenant Israel, through the good news, the gospel of peace. That means peace with God, reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And then Peter says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now the point, and it's a very important point, is that the Christian faith is faith in an historical person. Jesus of Nazareth, not myth, not legend. An historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, who throughout his ministry demonstrated remarkable miracles which can be attributed only to the power of God. You see, the Christian faith is not merely a a set of doctrines or concepts, spiritual principles, or moral standards. Christian faith is faith in a man who was God on earth. His ministry was witnessed by multitudes, and it was characterized by the doing of good and delivering people from the power of evil. He was the God-man. And Peter says, we are witnesses of all that he did. In other words, it's as though Peter is saying, look, this isn't hearsay. 
It's not myth. It's not legend. There are plenty of eyewitnesses. And by the way, I am one of them. And then Peter says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. It's interesting and very important that Peter refers to the cross as a tree. You often hear Pastor Jonathan or me say, in the assurance of pardon, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Well, did you know that verse is 1 Peter 2.24. Peter used the word tree in this sermon and then again when he wrote his first letter. Now, there's a reason. The reference to being hanged on a tree is a reference to bearing the curse of God. Peter is alluding to Deuteronomy 21-23, which says, A man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So Jesus is curse-bearing on the cross, the tree, bearing the curse of God in our stead, the, the curse upon us for our sins is at the heart and the foundation of the gospel preached by the apostles. Here is love vast as the ocean. Jesus hanged on a tree bearing the curse which would have fallen upon me. But, says Peter, God raised him on the third day, ding, 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 and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, here again is a remarkable statement, which again shows us another essential of the gospel. I want you to see these three basic points of Peter's sermon. First, Peter spoke of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was a real man who performed miracles which only God could do, in which the goodness and power of God were clearly seen. Two, as a real man, Jesus died a real death under the curse of God. And now, and now three, Jesus, in his real humanity, was raised from the dead by God, and it was a real bodily resurrection in history that really happened and was confirmed by eyewitnesses who ate and drank with him in real time after he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. A real man, really crucified, really cursed, and really raised from the dead. And then Peter continues, He, Jesus, risen from the dead, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So you see, in Peter's brief sermon here in Acts 10, the sermon which the Holy Spirit used to convert the first Gentiles, we hear references to the life of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and now, by implication, the ascension of Jesus 
and his future coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's the outline of the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ. There it is. And it calls for a response. We must make a response to Jesus Christ because we will be held accountable by Him. Jesus is the perfect, sinless man and the divine Son of God. He is the standard and He is the judge and He will judge all the living and the dead, Jew and Gentile, without distinction by the standard of His righteousness when He comes again. And He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And here's where the really the bottom falls out in so much of American Christianity today. The fact that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, how many people really believe that we will be held accountable before the righteous judge? How many people really fear God? And The real question is, how can anyone have any hope when being judged by the standard of perfect righteousness? You think God grades on a curve? Well, guess what? That curve has already been set. Perfect righteousness lived by Jesus Christ. That's the standard. To which everybody, without distinction, will be held accountable. So how could anyone have any hope of salvation on that great and terrible day? Here it is. Peter answers that question. To him, the righteous judge, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, Jew or Gentile, without partiality, without distinction, everyone, everyone, everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins through His name. That's the gospel. The righteous judge who was hanged on a tree is the merciful Savior for everyone. 
everybody who believes in Him. The righteous judge who was hanged on a tree. The man cursed because of our sins will forgive all the sins of all the people who believe in Him, submit to Him, embrace Him with repentance and faith and love. And He will do so by the authority of His name, the authority of who He is, the authority of the Lord over all whose name is above every name, which means that when you receive the forgiveness of sins through His name, your sins are forgiven forever, and you are acceptable to God. How how can we stand before the judge? How can we be acceptable to God? Through a man hanged on a tree through whom we receive the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel that was preached to Cornelius the centurion in Damascus of Syria. And it is the gospel that is preached to you in Monroe, Louisiana. A real man died a real death and was really raised in a real resurrection. And he will come again with power and glory for a real judgment. And everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Gracious God, our Father, We pray in Jesus' name for your Holy Spirit to work in us and to conform us more nearly to the likeness of your Son and grant us grace to live on earth as his brothers and sisters, citizens of heaven, your children, now on earth, to the glory of your name forever. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we do so responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism number one. Believing Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faith. Not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father be done. 
for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for 